Remaining here in this sanctuary, I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30 this morning. By the way, every week, um, Judy is faithful to mail out the bulletin by email on Wednesday. And so you know the title, the text, and the key verse for the sermon that's coming that Sunday. I would really encourage you to read that text ahead of time and to think about it, to meditate upon it, to prepare yourself for what, uh, what God is going to say to us. So today we do return to our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we have seen, Paul had a special love and appreciation for this church, which was one of the more mature churches mentioned in the New Testament. It had been planted by the Apostle Paul by sharing the gospel during his second missions trip over a decade earlier than the writing of this letter. And it had supported him in his later missions efforts, and even then, while he was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. Let's review briefly the first part of the letter to see how it sets up for Paul's charge to the church in our text for today. In the first two verses, there was a greeting by Paul to the church in Philippi. And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives thanks. It's, it's a thanksgiving for this church and for his relationship to that church and for their support and partnership in the work of the ministry. And then in verses 9 through 11, he prays for the church. It's a, it's a pastoral prayer, just as Eric and, and Don and I pray for you on a, on a daily basis, Paul prays for the church in Philippi. And then in verses 12 through 18, he gives the church an update on what's going on in his life, what's going on in his imprisonment, and how God is using even those circumstances to advance the gospel. God is using Paul's circumstances for God's own glory. And Paul gives thanks for that. And then in verses 19 through 26, as we saw the last time I preached three weeks ago, Paul is confident of God's plan for his life. Now, Paul is not entirely certain what that plan looks like. He knows that it's one of two things. Either God will deliver him, and he will continue to serve the Lord, or he will be executed and put to death. He's facing trial. He does not know which way that shall go. But Paul says, either way, he says, if I live, it's Christ. And if I die, it's gain. Because he will gain Christ. He will be with Christ. And he, you know... He trusts God that either way will be fine. 
Not only did Paul want to live for Christ and be the cause for others to glory in Christ, but he wanted this for the Christians in Philippi. In fact, he wanted this for all Christians. So in our text for today, he begins to lay out a charge for the church, calling them to live lives worthy of Christ and of the gospel of Christ by which they had been saved. He wants this for all of them, and I want this for all of us. So let's read our text, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Please stand for the reading of our text. This is the very word of God. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. Paul now turns his attention to calling the Christians in Philippi to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants them to live as Christ would have them live, to have spiritual integrity, to honor Christ in all things, to shine as lights in that present darkness and to stand up for Christ as good citizens of his kingdom. There's a calling here to live as worthy citizens in verse 27. Verse 27 contains a very specific main verb in the original Greek that is under-translated in almost all English Bible versions. As we just read, the ESV reads, only let your manner of life. But this should actually be translated, only let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel. There's an emphasis here on citizenship. The Greek verb here shares its root with the noun meaning city as well as another noun which means citizen. These referred to the city-states to which the inhabitants gave their primary allegiance. And Paul purposefully uses language evocative of citizenship because he has in mind that the Christians in Philippi, as elsewhere, are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And they need to be good citizens. 
bringing honor to his kingdom. Now, Philippi had a distinction of being a Roman colony, which was a highly privileged status that gave its citizens the same rights enjoyed by citizens of Rome. Such colonies took great pride in that association. They gave unqualified allegiance to Rome and to the emperor. They adopted Roman dress and Roman names, and they even spoke Latin, which was the official language of Rome. Even though they weren't in Rome, they wanted to be like Rome, like a little version of Rome. Roman society, like the Greeks before them, were highly community conscience. The individual was subordinate to the state and they were to be devoted first and foremost to the interests of the community. A good citizen was careful not to do or say anything that would bring disrepute on their community. Paul is here reminding the Christians that they are now citizens of the kingdom of Christ and they owe their faith and allegiance to him. They need to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ by which they were saved. Gordon Fee explains it this way. Paul uses the verb metaphorically, calling them to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of their heavenly kingdom. He later adds, as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi, whose members were to live as its citizens. So you get the picture? You and I might be citizens of Santa Rosa or Guerneville or Ronit Park, We might be citizens of California. We might be citizens of America. But more importantly is our calling to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And we need to live accordingly. Paul is challenging the Christians there to move away from their allegiance to Rome and to live as citizens of God's kingdom, not recognizing Nero as their Lord, but Christ as their Lord. The same applies to us today. We need to live for Christ. He is not just our Savior. He is our Lord, our King, our Master. We are called to live as good citizens of God's kingdom on earth. And His kingdom on earth we know as His church. As our city, state, and nation turn their backs on God and pursue the very things that God condemns, we are called by Paul to not conform to the ways of this world, but to live instead to please and honor Christ, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Paul wants us to be free from slavery to sin and to the things of this world. He wants to free us from fear of death and of judgment. He wants us to be living a life that corresponds to the divine truth given to us 
in the word of God. This mandate to live lives worthy of the gift that we have been given is repeated over and over again in Paul's writings. Let me remind you of just three of these. In Ephesians 4.1, we read this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here he's writing to the church in Ephesus, calling them to do the same thing. To the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.10, Paul writes, Live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he writes these words. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to live in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. One day, we will die, and that will be gain. And we will be in his presence forever. Amen? Praise God. But in the meantime, we are called to live as citizens of his kingdom, under his rule and rightly representing him on planet earth. We're called to live in this world, but to not be of this world. We are called to stand out from the crowd, to be lights of Christ in this present darkness, to live our lives not for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is to be adorned by the way we live out our lives in obedience to the God of the gospel. Now, Paul was very aware of the hostility of the world towards those who would live their lives for Christ. He had experienced it himself, first in Philippi and then in every other place. Everywhere he went to proclaim the gospel, he experienced the hostility of the world towards that proclamation. He's writing this letter chained to a Roman soldier because he had continued to proclaim the gospel. And he rejoices in suffering for the sake of Christ. And he is calling the Christians in Philippi and everywhere else to join him in living out their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel no matter what the cost, no matter the opposition, no matter the suffering. And Paul goes on in this text to describe three characteristics of Christians who live their lives worthy of Christ and his gospel. Standing firm, striving side by side, and suffering for Christ. Let's look at these characteristics of worthy citizens. First of all, standing firm. Standing firm translates the Greek verb stako, 
which refers to steadfastly holding one's ground regardless of danger or opposition. It's a military term. The word is used of a soldier who defends their position at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing their own life. Figuratively, it refers to holding fast to our beliefs, our convictions, holding fast to biblical truths without compromise, regardless of the cost, regardless of the opposition. Now, standing firm has both a positive and negative aspect to it. It is to stand for God and His Word. That's the positive. And the negative is, it is to stand against Satan and his lies. To stand for righteousness and to stand against sin. We are not to live our lives in conformity to this world, going along with the current thinking or trends. We are to stand firmly upon God's word, his commandments, his teachings, his standards. Not compromising to make our lives easier or to please others. I shaved my mustache off a few days ago. You probably noticed that. Because my wife said I looked 10 years older with the mustache. It was very, very gray. I'm 66 years old. Just a young guy, right? And in the last 60 years, to see what's happened in our country, it's frightening. As our country has turned its back on God, as our country has turned away from the clear teachings of God in Scripture, to where our country no longer calls sin the things that God calls sin, or sinful, the things, I mean, think of, think of abortion, a woman's right to choose, or homosexuality, or same-sex marriage, or mercy killing. That used to be called murder. We cannot compromise as God's church, as citizens of his kingdom. We cannot compromise No matter what the world does and says, we must stand upon his word. And we can do this by the power of Christ working in us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is at work in us. Turn over to Philippians 3. I want to read verses 17 through 4.1. We're going to get to this in a few months. But listen to what Paul says here later in the letter. Brothers, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And let me tell you something. That includes a large part of our population who claim to be followers of Christ. But they don't live as followers of Christ. They live according to the ways of the world. That's why it brings Paul to tears to think about that. That anyone would name the name of Christ and then go along with the ways of the world. It brings him to tears. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Don't compromise. And certainly don't compromise in order to please others. We're to live for our king. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul writes about the spiritual warfare that's going on in the world, the world in which we live and how we must stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Listen to what he writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul understood the evil that is in this world. Paul understood the satanic forces behind that evil. And Paul, over and over again, encourages the Christians, stand up against this. Don't be carried along by it. Stand firm upon God's word, upon God's promises. Paul was not afraid of what others might say or do to him. He didn't allow ridicule, persecution, suffering, or even the threat of death to stop him from living for Christ and proclaiming the gospel. That's why he wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he wants the same for the Christians in Philippi and everywhere else. And God wants the same for us today. We are called to be witnesses for Christ. 
We are called to be lights in this present darkness. You know, Jesus taught his followers, you do not light a lamp and then cover it with a basket. But that is what so many churches are doing today. They're covering the light of Christ with a basket so they can attract people that don't want the light. Jesus taught, you let that light shine for all to see. We cannot go with the flow of our culture. We cannot approve of sin or compromise what God clearly commands. We must stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit and live lives worthy of the gospel. And this is something that we really cannot do alone. We have to do it together in unity. We are to be striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul here is focusing on the need for unity within the church. Because we all know we are stronger and more effective when we stand together side by side. We are not meant to live for Christ on our own. We are meant to do so together, side by side with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are so much stronger together, and especially when we are united in purpose and goals. And that is our desire for our church, that we would be united in purpose and in goals. Paul wants us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The advancement of the gospel is the purpose that Paul has in mind for them and for us as well. Paul wants Christians to work together as a team for the advancement of the gospel and with it the kingdom of God. He knows that we must work together to achieve the purposes that God has for us. In his writings... Paul encourages us as Christians to love one another, to support one another, to share with one another, to pray for one another, to build up one another, and to encourage one another to love and good deeds. We are to work together as a team to accomplish all that God has given us to do, to advance his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you are here because God wants you to be a part of this team, this local expression of the body of Christ. He wants us to work together to advance his kingdom and to work in conjunction with other churches of like precious faith, to partner together to advance the gospel, to support missionaries and missions organizations that are of the same doctrine and faith and teaching. The gospel is the message that all have sinned and need a Savior. And the only Savior is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was given to us by the Father. He became a human being, born of a woman, to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live and then to lay down his life as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all 
who will believe in him. As we know, he died upon the cross in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended back into heaven from where he rules today over his kingdom, his church, as our Savior and Lord, our King, our Master. From the day of Pentecost until now, this message has been proclaimed and it has been opposed and ridiculed by those in the world. And those who have proclaimed it have been persecuted and even killed by the thousands, by the millions. Tragically, as I said earlier, many churches today seek to appeal to the masses by not preaching on sin, repentance, holiness, and humility. Or they water down the biblical elements of salvation and the demands of true discipleship, the demands to live our lives to honor Christ. In their attempt to draw people in, they've watered down the true teaching of the word of God so as not to offend anyone. That is the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is calling his church to do and to be. He wants us to strive side by side to proclaim the gospel message and to stand upon the truth of God's word regardless of the opposition against us. Regardless of the results. The results are in his hands. We're called to be faithful to what he has called us to. Amen? And Paul goes on in verse 28 to say, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. As I said earlier, Christians in Paul's day, including in Philippi, were being persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and even executed by the opponents of the gospel message. Others face somewhat less serious opponents, family members, friends, neighbors, or co-workers who ridiculed, persecuted, or even disowned them. But however serious their opposition was, they were not to live in fear of anything their opponents might do. Because the very fact they were being opposed was a sign from God. It was a sign from God that God will judge those opponents. And it's a sign from God for their salvation. Both are signs from God. The first to mark out his enemies. The second to mark out his beloved children whom he loves. Persecution for the sake of Christ proves that believers belong to him. In fact, Jesus promised his disciples that if unbelievers had persecuted him, then they should expect the same. Paul on several occasions stated that he was honored to bear on his own body the marks of Jesus. That is to be beaten by those who hated Christ. So as we strive side by side for the sake of Christ and his gospel, 
we not, must not be fearful or intimidated by those who oppose or oppress us. Knowing that we are called, listen to this, called to suffer for the sake of him who suffered for us. Suffering for Christ is a characteristic of a good citizen of the kingdom of God. Here, Paul proclaims an amazing truth that our suffering for Christ is actually a result of God's grace. Look at verse 29 with me. So, go back to the text here. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. Granted here, the verb karitso is from the same root as the noun charis or grace. It literally means to give, to render, or to grant graciously. In his sovereign grace, God not only gave believers the gift of saving faith to believe in him, but he also gave them the privilege to suffer for his sake. And such sufferings prepare us for the glory that awaits us. So there are two things that Paul mentions are gifts of God's grace. The first thing believers are granted for the sake of Christ is the saving faith to believe in him. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of this is a gift from God. Amen? And we know this. I don't need to read it to you. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through verse 10. We're all familiar with that, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, because of his love for us, he saved us, giving us the gift of salvation by his grace. And we rejoice in that gift of salvation given to us by God because he has chosen out of the billions of people on this planet to set his love upon us and to save us from ourselves from our own sinful state and to deliver us from the darkness of this world he has delivered us from the darkness in which we lived and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son amen and we rejoice in that don't we the second gift that god grants to believers is to suffer for the sake of christ This gift is not as appealing as the first gift. But it is an integral part of divine grace. It is this gift that drives us to our knees. That causes us to draw near to Christ. To depend upon the power of his spirit. And to join together with other believers for the strength that we need to endure. And all of those God desires for his people. 
It also allows us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to fulfill our calling for which we have been saved. Remember the words I alluded to earlier spoken by Jesus to his disciples the night before his sacrificial death on the cross. Let me read those to you. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Uh, Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Yes. Were the disciples going to be persecuted for living for Christ? Yes. In fact, all but one of them would die by execution. This is a promise that we don't necessarily like to hold on to. But it's a promise nonetheless. Live for Christ. People will hate you. Some people. Some will persecute you. Some will oppose you. He goes on in chapter 16, John 16 verses 2 through 4, to say this. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Is this still going on today? Absolutely. We are fairly insulated from the real persecution that is happening elsewhere in the world. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea. In any one of those countries, you can be put to death for coming out as a follower of Christ. And thousands are. We have the divine privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ in order to bring glory to him. And as I said earlier, we get to suffer for the one who suffered for us. And there is no comparison between his suffering and ours. None whatsoever. He not only gave his life, but he suffered the wrath of God that was due for every one of my sins. Should I not be willing to suffer some ridicule, some persecution, some rejection for him? The Apostle Peter echoes Paul's thoughts on this matter. And expands upon them in his first letter. Uh, in fact, why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to come back to our text in just a minute. but 1 Peter 
chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Listen to what Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right? He's provided salvation for us. And he is going to keep us and hold us until we realize the fullness of all that God has for us. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Peter says, hey, In this world, you will have tribulations. In this world, there will be sufferings. But these sufferings are actually God working to prepare you for an eternity that awaits you. And then in chapter 4, turn over there, verses 12 through 16, he revisits this idea of suffering as a Christian. Listen to what he writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter, like Paul, experienced the gracious gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. And both of them saw suffering For Christ as just that, a gracious gift from God. It was not something to be avoided, but something to be embraced and even rejoiced in. Knowing that when we do so graciously, we bring honor, glory, and praise to God. And listen to me. That's why we're here. That's why we live and move and have our being is to bring glory to him. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians and through his letter, all Christians, including you and I, to live lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm upon the truth of God's word, standing alongside our brothers and sisters for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by our opponents and willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Back in our text, 
we are told to follow in Paul's example. Look at verse 30. Engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Remember this. Paul is not asking the Philippians to do anything that he has not already done himself. He has set the example for them and for us. They were all a part of the one body of Christ, each members of Christ and each members of one another in Christ. Their conflict, whether in Philippi or in Rome, was one conflict. It's the conflict of good versus evil. The conflict of divine truth versus the lies of our enemy. The conflict of light versus darkness. The conflict of the temporary versus the eternal. This is the same conflict that you and I have been called to fight for the sake of Christ, for his honor, and for his glory. As those who have been saved by the gospel of grace, we're called to live like Paul. We're called to be gospel first people living lives worthy of the gospel. And we're to do this by understanding that God's grace and will for us includes both salvation and suffering. This is our holy calling as children of the Most High God, that we might be glorified, excuse me, that He might be glorified in the manner in which we live. It's not about us. It's all about him. Paul's words, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to close by a quote from John Calvin on this passage. Oh, if this conviction were only fixed in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness. And yet, what is more certain than that is the highest honor of divine grace that we should suffer for his name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, God decorates us with his insignia as we prove ourselves to belong to him. Let's pray.